Good evening. It's great to be with you. Uh, I hope you have a copy of the Bible, and I would invite you to open to Genesis chapter 1 this evening. As you turn there, I want to begin with a story that illustrates something I'm going to be driving at tonight. So my, my 15-year-old son, he's a sophomore in, in high school, and he's probably uh, the best athlete of my five kids, the most gifted in terms of his foot speed, his strength. He, he's just a really fast and strong kid. And t- as a kind of illustration of, of how much faster he is than his oldest brother, uh, when his oldest brother was running cross country, he did well to get under 18 minutes in that 3.1 mile race. In fact, I think his PR, his personal record, was 1747, if I remember correctly, was, was my oldest son's uh, PR. Well, my son Luke, who's 15, sophomore in high school, um, he last last cross country season as a ninth grader ran 1648. Um, so you know, my oldest son is a senior, barely got under 18. My uh, thirdborn son, as a sophomore, went under 17, and um, he really wanted to run track last season, and I wanted him to play baseball because I'm the coach of the high school baseball team, and we needed him more, more than, in my opinion, the track team did. So he played baseball, but that put him behind on his cross-country training. And, and when the baseball season ended in June, he said, with a purpose, now I train for cross-country. And he went after it. He was running 50 miles a week. This is a... I mean, 15-year-old kid, all through June, July, and August, he's running 50 miles a week. I took him, in God's kindness, I was invited to go teach in Egypt. Egypt is a a very hot country. Man, it was hot in Egypt, the first week of August. And it is not a place where you can easily find a place to run. He went to Egypt with me. He ran 50 miles a week in Egypt. We, We flew from Louisville, to Philadelphia or somewhere, and then to Munich. We had like a nine-hour layover in Munich. You know what he did? We flew overnight, arrived first thing in the morning. He got off the plane in Munich and went for a seven-mile run. And then we spend a week in, in Egypt, you know, and he's running, he, he, he's putting his 50 miles in. We take, we leave Egypt at three in the morning, arrive in Munich, you know, at like, I don't know, nine in the morning, and he gets off the plane and goes on an 11-mile run. I mean, the, the kid was just devoted purposed, fixated on the goal. Well, then the season starts, and things are not going the way he wants them to go. He's he's not breaking 17. In fact, he's barely getting 17.30, you know, whereas last season he was under 17. And we, we went out for a cup of coffee, and I said to him, what's going on? And he says, I get a mile in, and I start to feel the pain and I give up. And I said, Luke, why are you running these 50-mile weeks if you're going to quit after a mile? And he just, it, it sort of took him aback. And, and I mean, he, he, he began to take off, and he began to make progress. And I think, he, I think at that point, he only had like two races left, three races left. The third to last race, he matched his time from last season. He got 1648. And then he's coming up on the regional race, and in the, in the providence of God, I had a, a speaking engagement that I was driving to about an hour away, and I was going to be in the car during the race, and I found 
please don't do as I do, but I found a link on the race website that I could watch a live stream of the race. So I'm driving down the highway, the interstate, with my phone on the steering wheel, and I'm watching this race while I drive, and, and I locate his teammates. And, you know, I don't know where they're putting the cameras and how they're tracking with the kids, but I locate his teammates, and I'm like, where is Luke? Because usually they run as a pack until the end when they start, you know, trying to drive one another into the ground. And he's nowhere to be found among the teammates. And, and I, so I'm kind of puzzled, I'm worried, I'm like, where, where is he? And then they, they, they circle around to the finish line, and here comes the winner. And the winner is way out in front of the next two runners. And I, and I can see the winner is not Luke. But then the second place runner, he gets, he gets about 100 yards to the finish. And I don't know if you've ever been to a cross-country race where this happens, but, but somebody's body begins to break down. Like the, this poor kid was dehydrated, and all of the nutrients were gone, and his arms began to flail. I mean, he's second place in the race. You know, he's, if, he, if he had not had this breakdown, he would have probably gone under 16 minutes. But his, he, he, he just basically collapses and then tries to crawl across the finish line. And then I see somebody I recognize. And I'm like, I think that's Luke. I think that's Luke. And, and I had asked him, I would said, what are you hoping to run in this race? And he said, it's a fast course. I'm hoping to go sub-1630. And I thought to myself, 1648 to 1630, that's a big jump. But I didn't say anything negative. I didn't say anything discouraging. I just thought to myself, that's a big jump. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling for you. I'll be praying for you. And here he comes. And I'm looking at the clock that's displaying on the screen. And I'm thinking to myself, I think he's going to get there. He came across at 1627, and man, I'm, I'm driving down the road, and tears are just streaming down my face. All that work pays off. So the reason I tell you this story is to say this. You were created, you were designed with a purpose. And it's a purpose a lot bigger, a lot more significant, with, with ramifications a lot more far-reaching than some cross-country race. You were built, designed with a purpose. And we got three sessions together. We're going to look at where we came from, where things started, what God originally designed us for, and then we're going to look at what went wrong and how sin affects, sin and judgment affects uh, what's, what's happened. And then we're going to look at where we're going, what we're supposed to be up to right now. So tonight we're thinking about uh, where we came from, and specifically this, this purpose for which I contend God created men. So as we begin to think about this together, I would ask you, do you know what you were made for? Do you feel in your bones, I was built for this? I can remember one of my professors in seminary talking about uh, this movie about John Patton, World War II, when um, the, the war breaks out, and this man, uh, leader of men, he, he comes to this moment and he's in his life when he realizes there's going to be war. And, and there's this great scene in the movie when he utters an expletive, and then he says, I was made for this. And, and that, that's a great feeling. It, it would be a great thing to be a hammer that belongs to a carpenter. Or it'd be a great thing to be a throwing arm on Tom Brady's shoulder, right? It, it, it's a great thing to have a purpose, 
to be built for this thing and then to get to do it. And I submit to you that as a man, you were made with a purpose and your life is the opportunity for you to pursue this purpose. Uh, as we begin to approach the passage that we're going to start with here in Genesis 1, so we're going to drop in at Genesis 1, 26, but I want to say a word about what comes before that and the way that it informs us as people who are made in the image and likeness of God. So you may be, you may be familiar with Ephesians 5, 1, where Paul says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And I wonder if you've ever thought about how to imitate God in his work and what he does in creation. So I would just invite you to, to ponder for a moment and, and to ask yourself the question, does God need, does God need any of the stuff that he does from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 1-25? And the answer is no. God doesn't need any of that. He doesn't need to make the world. He doesn't need animals. He doesn't need the sun, the moon, and the stars. He needs none of this. Why does he do it? He does it for others. He does it to give life. He does it to provide for others. So I, I think that one aspect of be imitators of God as dearly loved children is this massive component of we should be others-centered. We should be situationally aware. These are kind of my my mantras for our baseball team. I mean, this is, what, this is what makes for a great teammate. You want somebody who's others-centered, servant-hearted, and situationally aware. I, lo I love that, that uh, clip. I'm sure you've seen it. I don't know if you're Yankees fans. But that moment when um, Derek Jeter's teammate overthrows the cutoff man, and he comes in from shortstop, and he makes the relay, and they nail the guy at home. That was not his play. But this is a guy who was situationally aware, he's, he's aware of what's going on in the game, he's other-centered, and he's servant-hearted, and he's going to do what his team needs him to do. And this is what God is doing when he makes the world. God creates the world, not for himself, but to give, to give a, a, a habitat, we could say a cosmic temple for his priests to dwell in. And, and with that before us, let me just invite you to look with me at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. But before we look there, I just want to make an observation about um, other stories. So uh, this, this little book on work that I wrote is in a, a series called Short Studies in Biblical Theology, and I want to say a word about what biblical theology is. So I would define biblical theology as the attempt to understand and embrace the worldview of the biblical authors. In other words, what we want to do is, I mean, some people, you know, they, they read so much news that they embrace the worldview of the reporters that are writing the news. Some people read so much, whatever, fiction, that they get lost in that story world. What we want to do is we want to read ourselves into the worldview of the biblical authors. And, and we want to see the difference between the worldview of the biblical authors and the worldviews on offer elsewhere from other sources of information. One of the things that a worldview consists of is an origin story, and that's what we're looking at here. The Bible's account of where we came from and why God made us, what, for what purpose, to what end he created us. And I want to just throw in a, a contrast with, with some other worldview stories. 
Um, in, in one of the ancient Near Eastern myths, the gods created humans because they wanted slaves. They wanted menial laborers to do the, unpl- the dirty work that they didn't want to get their fingernails uh, chipped and, and, and must buy. They wanted slaves, and that's why they created human beings. That is not the story the Bible is telling. Look at Genesis 1.26. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I don't, have a whole, I don't want to take a whole lot of time to go into this, uh, but this word image, elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's largely used to forbid the making of images of either the God of the Bible or other gods, right? That's where we see this word image a lot. And I think this is one component of the idea that when God made the world, he created it as a cosmic temple. So just a couple of Bible verses along these lines. Psalm 78, 69. Um, You built your sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth. Okay, so the sanctuary, the temple, is, is built like the heavens and the earth. That's what it's likened to. Um, Isaiah 66, 1. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? Okay, so I think what God is saying is, I built the cosmos as my temple. Now, in the, in the ancient Near Eastern knockoffs, in the cheap imitations, they build a temple, which symbolizes the realm over which their God reigns, and then they put an image of their God into the little temple that they built. And that image, that replica of the God represents the authority, the presence, the reign, the character of the invisible God. I think in the true story, what God did was he built the world and then he didn't make a block of stone or a piece of molten metal or a carved block of wood. He made a living, breathing, worshiping, human being. His image and likeness meant to represent his character, his authority, his presence, his reign. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. I'm going to give you another uh, myth here, this time from the Greco-Roman world. Uh, Maybe you know this story about how um, after after uh, Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to man, the gods got together and they wanted to punish mankind um, because they, they were unhappy that man now had fire. So they, they thought mankind needed to be punished for this. And so they got their heads together and they came up with a plan. And they decided to fashion a lovely maiden shape and to put into her the spirit of a demon and to give woman to man as punishment. That, that's their origin story of where females came from. And, and, and I, I think the way that women are treated in the Greco-Roman world matches their origin story. Well, that's not the story the Bible is telling. The story the Bible is telling says God created male and female in his image and likeness. And then I think the verse 28 is always surprising. It is a stunning verse. And God blessed them. God is happy about what he's made. He's happy about his image bearers, 
and he wants good things for them. God blessed them. And now here, we're going to enter into some of the, the points that, that I, I, want to see, I want us to see about the very good beginning, where we came from. I'm going to have more in just a moment to say about how we're made to represent God, but I think that's kind of already clear in what I've said so far about uh, man being the image in the cosmic temple, representing the character, authority, reign, and presence of the invisible God. I also want us to see here that God made man, and the first thing he says to him, he makes male and female, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, what he's going to call them to do as it goes on is, and fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, so man is given this massive task, fill the earth and subdue it, and to accomplish this, they have to be fruitful and multiply. If they're going to do this task, they're going to have to have a work-life balance. There's going to have to be a great marriage that produces godly, upstanding, righteous imitators of God children who join in the great work of filling the earth and subduing it. There's this proverb that I, that I came across this week in my studies, Proverbs 17.25. The ESV renders this verse. I think this is kind of a, an unfortunate rendering. It's, it's translated, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. The, the actual literal uh, rendering of this from the Hebrew is a little bit more of a dig at bad dads, bad fathers. Listen, here's my literal translation of Proverbs 17.25. A vexation to his father is the son of a fool. You hear what Solomon is saying? A vexation to his father is the son of a fool. In other words, if you've got a son who's a vexation to you, you're a fool. You're the problem, not him. A vexation to his father is the son of a fool. It's, it's, a, it's a gentle, well, not so gentle maybe, rebuke of bad parenting. If you don't want your kid to be a vexation, you're going to need to raise him right. You're going to need to, to, to get things in order. So the very first command, be fruitful and multiply, is going to demand a marriage that uh, entails cooperation, that results in fruitful um, uh, children being brought into the world. And, and we know this can only happen with a male and a female. It can't happen with two males. It can't happen with two, two females. Um, so purpose. I wonder how many of you guys in here tonight are single. Some, not that many, uh, are way too many single people in our culture. Way too many. In our culture, the, the marriage rate in like 1970, the marriage rate of, of adults in this country was well over 80%. The marriage rate in our country now is, I think, down around 40%, if not lower than that. We're, we're dealing with a civilizational disaster. People are not marrying, and they're not having children. And if you don't have that, you don't have a society. And if you don't have children, you don't have anyone to evangelize. If, if we don't have generations coming after us, there are not going to be people to whom we can proclaim the gospel. And, and uh, you know, you may say to me, well, is this still, is this kind of be fruitful and multiply, is this still in force? 
uh, I don't I don't have time to make this argument right now, but I, if, if I had time, I would argue that in Hebrews 13, when the author of Hebrews gives this list of commands in, in Hebrews 13, it's almost like he's saying, okay, let me tell you how to live now that the new covenant has been augurated. And among the things he says in Hebrews 13 is, verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So I think the author of Hebrews is absolutely affirming the ongoing creational reality of marriage as the expected norm for human adults. Maybe you want to have an argument about that with me later, but uh, we don't have to go into that now. First thing God says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And then here's their task. Having been fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In the picture that we're, that we're given here, If you look over at Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 8. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. So, um, I don't have a whiteboard, but that's okay. Let's just pretend that, um, let's pretend that, that, that that whole wall behind me here is the region of Eden. Within the region of Eden, the, the idea is, God plants a garden. And then notice how verse 10 says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So you got this wide region of Eden, and then this subset of that area that's the garden, and then this river is flowing out of Eden to water the garden. And and then we know that outside this region of Eden, you've got like the rest of the dry lands, the rest of the the earth, right? So it's almost like, if if I can put this in terms of the tabernacle, it's almost like you've got the camp of Israel, all the dry lands, and then maybe like uh, the the holy place, the region of Eden, and then the garden is like the holy of holies. Now, when God says to the first man and woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, I think in part what he's saying is, Make it where all the dry lands is like Eden. I've shown you what a garden is. I've given you this garden. Now you expand the borders of the garden. You make it so that the place where I am known and worshipped, the place where I am represented by those who are made in my image and likeness, covers the dry lands like the waters cover the sea. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, the name of the Lord will be praised. So I think essentially the task is, Adam, fill the world with my glory. That's his job. And I think that that remains our job. So so when we talk about ultimate purposes, ultimate purpose, your job is to be about the task of filling the world with God's glory. And notice what he tells the man to do there in verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, the it referring back to the earth, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Those are kind of the big tasks. Subdue the earth, have dominion over the animals. I think it's possible to connect everything that humans do to those two big purposes of subduing the earth and 
exercising dominion over the animal world. I think it's possible, if, you, if we think about it the right way, I mean, physical therapy, well, you're, you're refitting someone, uh, equipping someone, strengthening their, their weak places, or helping them recover from, the, from an injury so that they can get back to the task. Computer programming, well, if you, if you think of your uh, engagement with these things in terms of how you're serving the Lord, I think you can, you can envision um, subduing the earth or exercising dominion over the animal kingdom, over the world, uh, as, as being helped along by everything that people do. I think all of our endeavors uh, can be connected to these two great tasks. Um, as the narrative goes on, uh, let me invite you to look down at chapter 2, verse 7, where we read here, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Um, uh, I missed the end of verse 5. That's what I was looking for. Look at the end of verse 5, where it says, The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So this, this kind of purpose statement indicates that, that, that man's job at the beginning was to work the ground. And I think this is an extension of subdue the earth. Subdue the earth, make it glorious, make it like the, the Garden of Eden, holy of holies. Um, so God forms the man of dust. Notice uh, a couple of details here. Um, when he forms the man, the language, it, the, the verb used, yatsar, is a verb that's used to describe what a potter does with pottery. And the material that's used is dust from the ground. And then down in chapter 2, verse 15, we read here, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, I think we can easily connect working the garden to subduing the earth in 128 and to working the ground in 25. Keeping the garden is going to... This involves this, this verb shamar, which has the connotations of like guard or protect. And so I think that, that at the, the roles that Adam is being given here are roles of cultivating and then, and then guarding or protecting. So, so he's doing work in the garden, and then, then I think probably also it's his responsibility to keep things like unclean snakes out of the garden. And that has implications for what we'll see in our first session in the morning. So to this point, I think we can say man was made to represent God. He was made to be fruitful and multiply and he was made to work. And, and, and this is where this account in Genesis 1 and 2 is so important for us because at this point in the story, there's no sin, there's no death, there's no judgment, there's nothing even frustrating about the world. Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he, was made, that, that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Recently, I read a commentary on Genesis, um, and I was shocked when the author commented on Genesis 1.31, and he said, the fact that the serpent is going to enter the garden indicates that not everything is very good about God's original creation. 
And, and I'm an editor for this particular commentary series, so I went nuts on this, on this comment. Um, uh, I mean, it was like my, my brain, it, it was like I had, I, the top blew off. You know, I'm, I'm like, this destroys the story of the Bible. If we don't start with a very good beginning, how are we going to hope in a very good restoration? On what basis can we hope that everything will be made right in the end if everything is not very good in the beginning? This destroys everything. It ruins the story. So it's so important for us to see and embrace the idea that when God made the world in the beginning, there was nothing cursed about work. There was nothing under judgment about work. I think we can say that we would have loved to work. And, and everything that we would have engaged in would have been successful. It, we, we would have all been naturals. We, we would have, I mean, I, I don't know if you've had, uh, I get so frustrated when I have to do some task around the house. It takes me so long to figure out, for instance, how to undo the plumbing under the sink. And, and some people, they just walk in and they just see immediately. They take one look. Oh, I see what's wrong and this is how you do it. And don't you understand how that works? No, I don't understand how any of this works. <laughs> There wouldn't have been any of that frustration for us, I don't think, prior to our fall into sin. So in this very good beginning, the man is given um, these tasks. He's made to work. Um, and, and in what we're going to see, what we've seen so far, I should point out also, we've already seen indication that the man is given dominion. Genesis 1, 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. Kings have dominion. Kings exercise dominion. God is a king. Man is made in the image and likeness of God. You're made to rule. You're made to reign. You're made to, you're made to wield authority in a way that reflects the character of God. You're made, you're, made, you're created to maintain a hierarchy of authority. And, and this, is where, this is one of the places where our culture is really pushing back on the Bible. Our culture is trying to, to, to convince you it is always wrong to exercise authority. And you need to resist. And, and you need to maintain, in my home, I am the authority. In my relationship with my wife, I'm going to love her as Christ loves the church. I'm going to serve her. I'm going to lay down my life for her. I'm going to listen to her, but I'm the authority. I'm the authority, and I'm going to lead. We were created to have dominion. Men were. Uh, this, same, this same commentator on Genesis, um, he, he, he was objecting to something that I wrote because I wrote a commentary for the same series, and I'm objecting to his writings, and he's objecting to my writings because we're on the opposite sides of these issues. And, he, and he's like, well, God gave dominion and authority to the woman too. I'm like, have you read Psalm 8? You put all things under his feet. You gave him dominion over the works of your hands. Psalm 8 is, is indicating that it was to the man that dominion was given. Yes, the woman is made to help the man. And no, the man, I mean, in this pre-fall situation, there'd be nothing uh, inappropriate or nothing uh, wrong about the man's exercise of authority. Uh, that brings us to verse uh, 15. But before I say that, I just, I just want to say uh, one more thing about cultivation and keeping. Um, 
In the cultivation, I think this is where that concept of be imitators of God as dearly loved children. In the process of cultivating the garden, what's he doing? He's providing food. He's providing a a, a life-giving set of circumstances for all those who result from the being fruitful and multiplying and for his wife who's about to be given to him. So there's, there's provision in the cultivation of the garden and then there's protection in the keeping of the garden. So you're made to reign, you're made to provide, you're made to protect. Maybe you've looked into these statistics. Um, you, could, you could Google and find information on this. There are all kinds of articles out there. These comparisons between the net worth of a man that got married in his 20s and stayed married for the rest of his life compared to a man who never married. I mean, the, the, the net worth of married men is like triple the net worth of men who don't get married and don't have any dependents. And, and I think it just reflects the way that if a guy gets married, he realizes, I got bills to pay. I got people to provide for. And he gets after it. And then he also realizes, I can't go squander this money on some sports car. I gotta save. I'm gonna have to send some kids to college. And, and as a result, his assets increase and his net worth just begins to exponentially grow. And the other guy just fritters away his life, gratifying his own desires. I mean, I'm speaking in broad generalizations. Maybe you know some fabulously wealthy single guy who's a total servant-hearted, other-centered, uh, situationally aware person, and that's praise the Lord for those people. Okay, so man was made to be a king. He's made to be a provider. He's made to be a protector. Uh, look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is direct revelation from God to Adam. And in the next paragraph, the woman is going to be created. And in the following verses, she's going to evidence knowledge of this direct revelation, which means God revealed himself to the man. The man communicated the revelation to the woman. That's a prophetic function. So, so I think that it's, it's valid to say that in the garden, Adam is a prophet, a priest, and a king. He's made to lead and provide and protect. He's made very good. He's made upright. And he's created to fill the world with God's glory. Um, let me draw your attention to what happens in verse verses 21 and 22 of chapter 2, when the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up, the, up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And on the word made, if you're looking at an ESV like I am, down in, it's got a footnote, and down in the lower margin, it says Hebrew, built. This is the, the verb bana, and it's used to describe what like stonemasons or carpenters do. So whereas the making of the man was from the dust, and it was action of a, pot, a potter, with the making of the woman, it was from the man's rib, and it was the action of a builder that God engaged in. My, my point here is, 
man and woman, though both made in the image and likeness of God, they're made of different substances and, in a, and with a different process. And, and, and I think that Moses means to communicate men and women are different. They're really different. And anyone who's married can attest to this fact. We, we know the differences between men and women. But then look at what happens when the Lord brings her to the man in verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones. And you notice, you notice how, the, how the ESV has indented this statement that the man makes. He has broken out into poetry. Uh, his, his response to the woman is to articulate humanity's first poem. And, and so I want to say to you, brothers, go ahead, be a poet. Be a king, be a, be a priest, be a prophet, be a poet. Be a leader, be a provider, be a protector. This at last is bone of my bones. In the substance of what we are as human beings, men and women are of the same substance, we could say. And flesh of my flesh, she was made out of him. So there's a, there's a biological reality that the man is celebrating in this, this first poem on record. And before I read the next lines, I want to remind you of what has been happening to this point in the book of Genesis. Chapter 1, God says, let there be light. Then he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And that's how it goes, over and over again. He makes something, and then he names it. And then right before this, God starts making these animals, and then he brings them to the man. And it's as though he says, you're my apprentice, you're my image and likeness, this is what I've been doing, making and naming. Now I've made it, you name it. So he brings the animals to the man to see what he would call them. The act of naming is an exercise of authority. So that when the man says, she shall be called woman, this is an exercise of authority. This is, this is unfallen, prejudgment, created order, male headship that is being enacted. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And over in the New Testament, uh, Paul uh, will appeal to these events on various occasions, and, and he'll point out in 1 Corinthians 11 that not only was she made from the man, she was made for the man. And it's not that the man was made for the woman, but the woman for the man. And, and this is Paul's basis for urging that there need to be appropriate relationships of authority and submission between men and women, husbands and wives, uh, both in the home and in the church. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then uh, we see something remarkable happen in verse um, uh, 24 here. And um, I want to describe to you what's happening, and then we'll read the verse, okay? So what's happening here is we're reading a narrative of what God did at creation, and then what happened in the Garden of Eden between the first man and the first woman. When we get to verse 24, a conclusion is drawn from the narrative. Okay. These events happen in this way, therefore, this is the way it goes. Okay, so, so what the Bible is claiming, the Bible is claiming, and this is, this is me uh, speaking and talking like a biblical theologian, the Bible is claiming this is the true story of the world, and because this is the way the true story of the world goes, this is a truth that you derive from the way the story unfolds. 
And that is the opposite of the way that every other religion on earth operates. Every, every other religion, what they do is they come up with a value or they come up with something that they want and then they make up a story that justifies their claim. What the Bible is claiming is our truth, our doctrine is derived from the events as they happened in the beginning. So look at verse 24 there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So you see how this works. Because of the way that God makes man, then he makes the woman, then he brings the woman to the man. Therefore, this is what marriage is. One man, one woman, cleave together, leave their parents, and and notice how it's applied to all the descendants of Adam and Eve. Because they don't have father and mother. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Because of what just happened with this first couple, therefore, this is the way it goes for all human beings. And they shall become one flesh. Uh, my um, longtime friend, one of my best friends in the world, and uh, co-pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church, Denny Burke, he um, very compellingly made the argument this past fall at at uh, the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society, that this one flesh union is the sexual union. And he made the argument that apart from the consummation of the sexual union, which in the context, you know, this, this is the way they're going to be fruitful and multiply. You can't be fruitful and multiply if you don't have a one flesh union. And he made the argument that this is con- constitutive of a marriage. So that if you don't have a one flesh union that is capable of reproduction... You don't have a marriage, okay? So that means, that means you know, whatever happens between two males or two females, they, they, they cannot have a union that is capable of reproduction, and so they cannot have a marriage. And this doesn't mean that someone who is barren or someone who is sterile cannot have a marriage because their one flesh union is capable of reproduction. And, and um, we could, we could uh, discuss um, other... Um, realities that derive from this, but um, I think that that we we should, as the author of Hebrews puts it, hold marriage sacred and um, make sure that it is undefiled. And I, and and what I'm saying here to you, brothers, is um, really how are you doing? How are you doing on all these fronts? How 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 are you? with the purposes for which God made you? How are you understanding the work in which you are engaged? And and I would encourage you, if you need to, to do some work of reformulation in your thinking about your work. If you're thinking about the work merely as, I'm just doing this for a paycheck, I would encourage you to reconfigure your thinking. I would encourage you to think your way through to, how do I do this to image forth the character of God? How do I do this as an imitator of God, as a dearly loved child, seeking to to be a life giver for others, somebody who's other-centered, somebody who's um, situationally aware, somebody who's servant-hearted? How do I imitate God in those ways through my work? How do I pursue the glory of God through the subduing of the earth and the exercising of dominion over the world through the work of God? that is given to me. Um, There's a a great story in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, 
about Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was the highest ranking military office, officer in the Hanoi Hilton during the v Vietnam War. And in that terrible situation, you know, these guys are being tortured. Um, Jim Stockdale, he, he, he taught the men under his command, and, and he really, he took command of all the soldiers, the American soldiers, um, in that, um, in that um, detention camp. And he said to them, we have to look the facts full in the face. And, you know, in the next couple of sessions, we'll be looking the facts full in the face, looking at the devastation brought into the world as a result of sin and death. But Stockdale said, we, we have to look the facts full in the face and we have to recognize we're not getting out soon. And we have to figure out how to survive. And so what, what, what they did, they began to communicate through uh, the Morse code so that they wouldn't know, um, the, their captors wouldn't know what they were saying to one another. And Stockdale began to um, give his guys um, like benchmarks as they were enduring suffering, as they were being tortured. After this amount of time, you can divulge this kind of information, but no more. And then if you're going to give up any more information, this amount of time has to have passed. So he's giving these guys these checkpoints to help them make it through. What he's doing, in a way, is saying to these guys, we're going to survive, we're going to get out of here, and this is how we're going to do it. And, and as, as leaders, as husbands as, and fathers, one of the things that we should be saying to our wives and to our children is, this is where we're going. This is how we're going to get there. And then we should set the atmosphere for our people. It's going to be great. We're going to love this together. This is going to be awesome. So I've said to my sons, my goal for you boys, I don't care what you wind up doing for a living, I want you to be elder qualified men. I want you to be an elder qualified man. I want you to be blameless. I want you to be the husband of one wife. I want you to love the Lord with all your heart. I want you to be the kind of guy that when the pastor sees you walk into the church, he's like, yes, praise the Lord. And I said to my daughter, I want you to be a woman worthy of an elder qualified man. I want you to be a woman with a gentle and quiet spirit. You need to cultivate submission. You need to, to practice a disposition to yield to male leadership. This is where we're going. This is how we're going to get there. Guys, I want you to read this book. I want you to memorize this scripture. We're going to be in church. This is what we're going to do together. It's going to be great. I'm going to enjoy this. You're going to enjoy this. We're going to enjoy this together. Unfortunately, we were made, as Ecclesiastes says, upright. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, uh, Solomon says, he says, this one thing I found, Ecclesiastes 7, 29, God made man upright. They have sought out many schemes. We have used our God-given intelligence and ingenuity to pursue all manner of sin and impurity. We've been like a hammer that decided what I want to be is glue. So instead of smashing things or driving things in, I want to be the wrong tool with the wrong purpose and the wrong job. And we can't make it right. We, we can't fix what we're about to read in Genesis chapter 3. But the rest of the Bible is the, about the one who can and does 
make it right. So we start with this very good beginning, and it's the, it's, it's the glory from which we have fallen. It's the glory that we fail to evidence, but it's there. It's there, and the promise of the rest of the Bible is because of what Christ has done, that glory will be restored. That glory will be realized. You know, if you think about the logic of the Bible, God's going to make this glorious thing in the beginning, and then people are going to sin and transgress, and what's he going to do? Is he going to give up on his creation? Is he going to let Satan ultimately prevail? Or is he going to accomplish the purposes that he set out to achieve when he began to make the world? That, of course, obviously, is the right answer. So, where we came from, tomorrow morning, first thing, we'll look at what went wrong. We'll look at Genesis 3, and, and then we'll uh, see the ramifications of that through some other passages in the Bible. And then in our second session in the morning, we'll look at, at where we are going. If I could leave you with one thing, I would really encourage you to take some time and think about the purposes for which God made you. And then seek to, seek to reflect on your life and ask yourself, how am I doing with reference to these purposes? What do I need to do to live out what God made me to be? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is the image of God, the visible image of the invisible God. And we praise you, Lord, that Paul says that we all, with unveiled face, as we gaze on him, are being renewed into the same image. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word to show us who we are, to show us what you made us for, and to bring us into line with your purposes. Father, we want to see your, your glory cover the dry lands as the waters cover the seas. We know that we cannot bring this about. And so we gladly pray, come Lord Jesus, come and renew all things. Come and wipe away every tear. Come and make it so that death, the last enemy, is finally defeated. And we ask this in Christ's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.